Welcome back to Russian Roulette, a podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. In this episode, I sit down with Phil Stewart, who is the director of the program in Dialogue and Organizations at the International Institute for Sustained Dialogue and a senior associate with the Kettering Foundation. Uh, Most importantly for our purposes, he directs a bipartisan dialogue on U.S. policy towards Russia. Uh, This is a track two initiative uh, between Republicans and Democrats designed to build a sustainable U.S. policy towards Russia. Uh, Full disclosure, uh, I'm a participant in this dialogue and uh, Uh, We talk about some of the things that have come up in the meetings uh, and uh, ideas for um, actually, well, building a sustainable U.S.-Russia policy. Uh, It was a really uh, interesting and hopefully illuminating discussion, and we hope you enjoy it. Let's get started. Welcome back to Russian Roulette. Uh, I'm here in the studio today with Philip Stewart from the Kettering Foundation. Uh, Phil, welcome to Russian Roulette. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. So Phil is heading up a a really interesting initiative uh, right now called Bridging the Gap, uh, which aims at uh, bringing together not so much Russia and America, but bringing together Americans about Russia. Uh, This is an effort to find some sort of a bipartisan basis for uh, developing U.S. policy initiatives towards Russia. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the initiative, where the idea came from, and what you sort of see as, as the, the end goal? Uh, the idea uh, came from discussions with our funder uh, about what we might do uh, once that we had, she had stopped funding other work, some other work we were doing with the Russians. And, and uh, she thought something on, uh, and the U.S. would be good. And we initially proposed, uh, let's just see if we can bring people with, if people with widely diverse views will come in the same room. And then I, uh, thinking about that, I, and I had to write the invitations, I had to create a, a focus. And uh, what occurred to me was, uh, what would make this interesting to people, I thought, was uh, seeing if we could work together to begin to bridge the divide on what U.S. policy toward Russia should be. And uh, so, and that was uh, uh, our, our funder like that. And uh, everyone we invited was excited to come. So uh, we've been working now since last April uh, together, and our, we'll have our concluding meeting very soon. So it's obvious that an initiative like this is very timely because it seems that Russia has become uh, very much an element in. Our domestic politics, um, and I'm curious, looking at at the situation in in this country, uh, sort of how you you diagnose the the problem. Where does that discord come from? Yeah. Uh, one of the, if we look historically, we see that the U.S. and Russia, since President Nixon and his uh, declaration of detente in 1972 three after the, together with the opening to China, has sought a better relationship with Russia. And every time it has failed. Right. The, every administration has its own reset. That's right. And so obviously the roots of these differences are, 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 are deep. 
uh, under the Soviet system, uh, it was the, uh, the, in a sense, the fear of communism and the threat that their ideology opposed to the United States uh, values. Uh, and so we wouldn't even recognize them until 1933 and 1934. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, if we look at the contemporary uh, uh, period, the United States felt that Russia had violated a fundamental norm established uh, uh, in, the, in the liberal international order uh, and confirmed in the Helsinki agreements of 1975 that borders are sacred, that we don't uh, violate those borders. And Russia did so by uh, taking over the Crimea, which had been given to Ukraine by, by the Soviet government in 1954. Uh, taking over the Crimea, I should say, yes. And uh, that uh, uh, created the current freeze. It was exacerbated by the Russian leadership's preference for President Trump. Uh, and made, So you don't have any doubt that that was the goal of Russia's involvement in the, in the 2016 election? I don't think they intended any more than any other countries in their lobbying efforts to determine the outcome. They simply wanted to do what they could do, uh, as, as, as Israel or other countries uh, try to do when there's uh, an issue that uh, is important to them. And here they thought they had a, I don't know exactly what they thought uh, they would get from, from him, but what they knew they would get from Hillary Clinton was uh, the, a, a manifestation of the anger and disgust and revolt that she had, uh, revulsion she had against uh, uh, Russia based upon her experience as Secretary of State. And so uh, I think that was their motivation. And what made it a, a, a political issue in our country, a very, very, uh, actually almost a unifying issue, that's the sad thing, uh, was the fact that Hillary Clinton lost the election and the easiest thing to do would be to blame uh, the Russians. Right, except that, I mean, what's been interesting is that, you know, if you go back to the 2012 election, um, it was the Republican candidate who was calling for a much harder line on Russia. Yes, you know, Mitt yes, Romney famously yep. described uh, Russia is as America's greatest geopolitical yeah. foe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now fast forward four years and the shoe is, is completely on the other foot. Yeah. Um, and so to what extent has the, the narrative about what happened in 2016, the backlash to 2016, kind of reconfigured the American political debate about Russia? Well, you know, if we go back to, even to the 70s, uh, it was the Democrats who opposed detente. And so there have been a, a, a number of shifts. But certainly the, uh, the, the loss of uh, the election by Hillary uh, gave easy political, uh, political explanation of why they lost, uh, easy to blame Russia. One of the things I find fascinating is that there's been no indication uh, of Russian interference in the midterms. Uh, in, the, in the social media, Russia, Russian uh, bots and, and other interventions occupy, I read the other day, one one hundredth mm -hmm. of 1% of all of the social uh, uh, media uh, space. So Compared to, do we know what it was in 2016? Uh, 
Well, we know. I don't think we know. I haven't seen a comparison. Uh, but uh, there was, if we talk about, and this I'm talking about social space, social media space. Uh, but there's almost no uh, uh, intervention on behalf of any particular candidate mm-hmm. this time. And and that's a big change that we we were expecting interference in the elections rather right. than right in our social divisions, uh-huh. and um, uh, so uh, and also fascinating in this in, in the midterm uh, elections on ads there have been very very few references even to Russia, uh, so the, the easy capital of blaming Russia mm-hmm. seems to just not be playing anymore. And that we hadn't noticed in our group, and I think mm-hmm. that's you know a very recent uh, and, and important uh, uh, change. But but the there you know let's get more to the more fundamental element of it. Uh, uh, Russia has a different value system than us, uh, although not entirely, not like in the communist system. They do not seek to take over the world. Uh, in religion, they share a great deal with uh, our our conservative religious uh, people uh, of all faiths in this country. They are a, a technologically modern uh, country. Uh, they value technology. They value entrepreneurship. But uh, when it comes to uh, de- democratic values, there we have a huge gap. And uh, it's easy to say that we... Uh, always have had better relations and, uh, and, and our close allies have always been democratic. But then there's the case of Khashoggi and Saudi Arabia. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. <laughs> but that's another explanatory that's a whole other can of uh, That's another explanatory <laughs> factor. You see, we have profound economic interests there mm-hmm. and national security interests in terms of oil that we don't have with Russia. Right. So we don't have overwhelming need to be friendly with Russia from, uh, uh, except for one area, and that's our security. And that's where uh, uh, I think that is what has drawn us together and, 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 and should draw us together. That's what drew us, drew us together in the 70s. That's what drew us together under Obama, where we had the new start. And it's, it, is, it is the thing that we hold in common. It was, uh, I think, President Nixon who said, no, I'm sorry, it was uh, 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 Reagan who said, we cannot be secure unless each of us feels secure. So I know that the the meetings that have been held uh, under the aegis of this initiative um, are all conducted under Chatham House rules, and I don't want to, you know, ask you to to break that. But can you talk a little bit about um, the character of the discussions? If you've been surprised by anything when you get Republicans and Democrats in a room together to talk about this issue? All right. First, on Chatham House rules, all they prohibit is is naming uh, particular right. people's views. So we can talk about the substance of mm-hmm. the discussion. I was thrilled by one uh, uh, experienced diplomat's uh, statement at the beginning of the second meeting, uh, third meeting. He said, this is the most intellectually exciting thing I've done in my life. <laughs> and, and that reflects, I think, what we all felt as we were working through our differences in the spring. We uh, had sharp differences over how to evaluate the Russian interference in the election. Should that make any relationship with them uh, a no-go? Mm-hmm. Uh, or can we, can we move uh, beyond that or, or deal with that in, in, in some way? Uh, in terms of sanctions, we had, I think, a, 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 a good discussion. Although what's interesting is that, you know, 98% of the senators and some have voted for, uh, in a sense, permanent sanctions mm-hmm. against Russia. 
And surveys show that uh, uh, something like 85, 90% of Democrats uh, support the sanctions against Russia and 75% of Republicans. Right. So, there's very few things on which there's bipartisan agreement in Washington right now, but that may be yep. one of the few. And yet what we uh, have are coming up with in this group is uh, what we call a sustainable bipartisan uh, strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what has pleased me and uh, I think is, is our real contribution is that we recognize that the, a policy based prim- almost exclusively upon uh, sanctions is detrimental to U.S. interests for several reasons. One, it means that we abandon negotiations. We abandon the verification procedures uh, uh, agreed to as a part of the NIF treaty and the New START uh, agreement. Uh, now, fortunately, we haven't yet made final decisions on mm-hmm. uh, on, on the INF, and, and the president has agreed to consult uh, with uh, the appropriate agencies, which is a, a, almost a first for him in, in international <laughs> affairs. So, uh, you know, I have some hope. In fact, from Bolton's last uh, trip to Moscow, uh, shortly before I went there, uh, he, he uh, was more hopeful. About, actually, he called for uh, a uh, invigoration of people-to-people relationships, uh, which we also felt was very important. So, uh, but what we what we came up with is that there are really three different elements in our policy and always have been, uh, and that is we can sometimes confront, as we are right now, almost exclusively as confrontation. Uh, in, we compete. We compete actually constantly in the development of nuclear weapons and, mm-hmm. and other, uh, other uh, capabilities, uh, and that is probably good for the technology development on each side, although it's expensive. And, but without arms control, it, it's self-defeating. Uh, we are competing for influence around the world, although uh, uh, under the current president uh, with uh, the uh, – a Russian friend had a very interesting take on this, uh, saying that Trump is adopting a strategy that the British played for 200 years of the balancer, mm-hmm. that Europe is, is no more important to us than Russia or China, and the U.S. should balance between them and, and therefore can shift its alliances and, and achieve flexibility. Well, that's right. what we're arguing for, whether one buys that argument or not. The, uh, the Palmerstonian uh, approach, you might call it. The plum- yes, yes, right. And, and, the, and the, the, the final element of this is cooperation. And what we did to try to do is to identify, okay, what should be the appropriate balance between mm-hmm. those? And I think we've come to uh, some kind of, uh, of consensus on that. And, and that is that, that there, we need to compete wherever, uh, for example, with China. We can't let Russia uh, uh, become an ally of China. One a- expert called them in, in an entente, uh, which is not an alliance, but it's an understanding. Uh, we are, Trump is trying for that understanding in his own methods with China, whether he will achieve it or not. But we need to compete uh, for influence around the world. Uh, we need to compete technologically. Mm-hmm. But uh, on our most to, uh, to protect our most fundamental interest, which is our national security, uh, we can – arms control uh, uh, and negotiations, particularly over strategic security, are the the bedrock of that security. And particularly today, where we have uh, hypersonic weapons that will uh, will make ABMs useless uh, in development, and Russia claims already ready for deployment, uh, where we have cyber warfare, all of those things are elements of strategic security. And uh, uh, we need to both compete in the meantime and confront in the meantime, but at the same time come to the table and and, uh, work on strategic security together. So you mentioned that 
discussing the the impact of, of Russia in the 2016 election was yes. an area where there was a lot of disagreement within the yes. group. Right. Um, but there is this uh, now sort of general set of policy recommendations that has buy-in from people on different sides of the political spectrum. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the process of sort of going from disagreement to agreement among the participants and sort of where the the compromises and, and trade-offs that people were, were willing to make uh, were found? We began by simply free-flowing discussion. Uh, the, the, but behind that were the principles of what we call sustained dialogue developed by Hal Saunders. Mm-hmm. And the, the notion behind that is as people with different views listen carefully with the intent to understand the views of another, their minds tend to open up. Uh, uh, they, be, they become ready to hear something that they disagree with. And uh, I suspect in all the panels you're on, that doesn't you, you don't experience that very often, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, it, it depends. I think the, the point of panels is not necessarily to get people to agree. I the, agree. The point is often to, and that's why this is. So we we you know we met also for a sufficient amount of time, uh, uh, about ten or twelve hours of Friday night and all day up to all day Saturday. And that gave people a chance to really have their say. That's the, the one element of it. The second element uh, was that uh, we tried to, uh, uh, after we talked, to say, okay, let's put something on paper. So once we identified the, the, these three uh, uh, Cs, if you want to call it that, then we uh, suggested that we selected people who people volunteered. Let's see what this would look like. And so we ended up with, uh, uh, with three papers that uh, formed then the basis for discussion. Okay, well, what are the strengths and weaknesses of this and, and, and where should this apply and where should the other apply? And then I tried to take building on the careful notes that our rapporteur had of each session and my own memory uh, to put that into a, a single document. And uh, then began the, I would say, the very creative, very productive process uh, in the government would be called interagency coordination, I think, <laughs> right? Uh, except there we're not trying to uh, get uh, a common policy, but we're trying to, uh, what we did is a number of people, I would say about half of the participants, wrote very uh, careful critiques mm-hmm. of where we were. And what uh, uh, both the substance of the uh, of the argument and the uh, the way in which it was expressed, and that process is still going on in part thanks to you. You were the most recent, but that has been a very productive process. Uh, I think we did have one person who felt they they could not uh, go along with this uh, agreement and dropped out, but otherwise uh, our group has uh, has held together. And I, I can say that. You know, there are people who are very strong supporters of this administ- current administration and, and people on the far other side. Uh, and uh, as a, a member of the board and a founder of the Sustained Dialogue Institute, I would say, well, Sustained Dialogue is, is working here. And what we have done is to systematize that process uh, across differences. Mm-hmm. And based on those relationships that, that people have with the administration, are you hopeful that there's a report that will be produced that this will have some uh, impact on on the administration's actual decision-making process towards Russia? I'm hopeful. Uh-huh. As I tell people when they, you know, I tell them I've been in the, in the Soviet field since uh, 1960, uh, the only way I could stay in this field is if I'm an optimist because <laughs> <laughs> I've been through it all. Yeah. But it's not simply blind optimism. You know, we used to say that 
only a Republican could improve relations with the Russians because mm-hmm. they have a record of anti-communism, right? Right. And uh, uh, John Bolton has a better record of anti-Russian uh, <laughs> uh, uh, policy uh, or, or views than uh, almost anyone we would could name. And yet, in the in his recent meeting in Moscow, he was supportive of a lot, of a number of constructive suggestions, including you know two new meetings together, mm-hmm. uh, including putting together a, uh, a a group of businessmen to come up with a a, a road uh, a map forward, and a group of uh, of uh, uh, private citizens uh, to try to do the same, and uh, uh, so and that is is currently taking shape, so. Uh, there was a, another uh, uh, interesting event uh, that gives me optimism. You see, you have to search for these things. You're not just in the field. <laughs> but uh, I was talking with the uh, Russian co-chairman of the U.S.-Russia Dartmouth Conference, of which I'm the director, and they said, you know, just a few weeks ago, I got a call from our minister of energy and said, you've got to come and meet this guy, the sec- our secretary of energy. And I, I go, and, and what are they talking about? The, our U.S. Secretary of Energy says we need to come up with one or two large new energy projects that we do together. Now wait a minute, we've sanctioned all our energy companies. So, well, how, how can this be possible? Oh, I just this is Russia. <laughs> we can make anything happen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, those things uh, give me optimism. We do have uh, uh, some more direct channels uh, mm-hmm. uh, into the administration, but uh, I'm actually I think more focused on the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we are hopeful that, uh, and we are, in fact, this weekend, we'll continue to work on a strategy for who has contacts where and can can communicate these ideas uh, so that they hopefully enter the political arena. Uh, That's one dimension. Mm -hmm. Another important dimension uh, is, you know, working with the public. There is a project out of Ohio State University uh, and connected with the Kettering Foundation, which is, encourages people to think together seriously about issues, that uh, conducts discussions around the country. And this project at Ohio State has made direct connections with members of Congress. Mm-hmm. And so these can be held in districts, in, the, in their districts, and the uh, uh, results with all kinds of a- analytics reported directly to the congressman mm-hmm. or senator. Now, there's, uh, this is a, a, something that we at Kettering for 30 years have been working on and never been as, as successful. But, uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic. In fact, I just today received uh, the a concrete proposal from them mm-hmm. uh, as to what this would look like. So we need to work with all of the potential targets. My, my, my experience working with the Kettering Foundation for about 30 years is that until the public thinks through what we want from Russia— can we live with a country that is not democratic? Can we open our eyes and recognize that the U.S. has done many of the same things that, uh, that we accuse that the Russians have done? Can we deal with the question of moral equivalence or not, right? So uh, these are things that until the public begins to work through and mm-hmm. work through the trade-offs, I don't have a lot of optimism for a sustainable policy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting that you focus on the, on the public because – you know, on the one hand, since 2016, there is much more of a public discussion around Russia than yes, there had been yeah, that's right. prior to that. In fact, we had tried many times in a – we have an issue book called uh, America's Role in the World and try to get people to talk about Russia. Mm-hmm. Nothing until uh, after the 2016 yeah. election. But even still, yeah. uh, I think 
most candidates for elective office would tell you that with rare exceptions, usually having to do with the president, foreign policy doesn't play a big role in those yeah, elections. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. members of Congress care about foreign policy. One is brought before them, they have to vote on a bill, or if they happen to be on one of the committees of jurisdiction, you know, the Foreign Relations or yes. Armed Services Committees. Right. But otherwise, what's the balance, I guess, between trying to <coughs> socialize the the conclusions of, of this project and this report more broadly versus trying to uh, you know, convince the people who are going to be ultimately responsible for the decisions that this is the, uh, a sustainable way forward? The, uh, the, it's really both and. If, if you had a presidential candidate talking about the need for a more flexible policy toward Russia, about uh, the areas where we share common interests, uh, about the need uh, in our own interests to move uh, uh, forward in the relationship in a more productive way, that would, uh, I think, then uh, raise the status of, of discussion of Russia and ideas about Russia uh, in the Foreign Relations Committee, the Foreign mm -hmm. Affairs Committees, the Armed Services Committees. And those are the, it's, it's the members of those committees in whose districts we would want to try to, mm -hmm. and I think, uh, strategically uh, begin. Uh, and I don't think, uh, if we have begun and failed again and again, you know Einstein's saying. You know, so <laughs> the definition of insanity. It. That's right. Yeah. So uh, we need to, I think, take a, a, a longer-term perspective and uh, uh, work on that perspective. Uh, I'm only 80 years. I'll give myself 15 more years, and, and, and I, I hope we will get, to get there. Uh, one of the things we have done, that we have taken an important first step. We have brought together experts and politically influential people from around the, the district, uh, and a few of us from outside, uh, and we have done the trick. We have come together. Uh, so uh, it, that's that's a good start, and uh, it, we will uh, build on that success as we uh, work uh, more more broadly. The key is building relationships and discussing these issues, raising these issues in ways that the, your your correspondents feel that they are their ideas. And then uh, these are your, your tilling the field, planting the seeds. So at the conclusion of this process, your takeaway is that maybe the partisan gap over Russia is not as wide as it seemed at the beginning, or at least that there is some possibility of bridging that gap. That's correct. And, and, and in fact, however, there, there, we have a challenge. Uh, we bridge the gap actually in a constructive way, but there is a, a bipartisan policy toward Russia right now mm -hmm. in the political arena. Right? Yeah, that's and, right. And so what we need to do is to – but it, it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I, I say in It's not word, sustainable in the U.S.-Russia context or in the domestic political context. It's more sustainable in the domestic context mm -hmm. than – because Russia has always been a good beating child. Uh, but uh, in, the, in terms of our, international, our national security – uh, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable in many ways. Uh, the the Russian economy uh, is going back to growth. Mm -hmm. uh, this year, 1.7%. Next year, 1.8%. It's not a lot, but it's better than recession, which it was before. Uh, in part, that's impossible by the fact that the oil prices have gone up. Mm -hmm. uh, a critical factor that uh, the uh, sanctions have done is to encourage Russia to become, in effect, a partner of OPEC. 
and thus a price maker mm-hmm. instead of a price taker in the international oil uh, area. Uh, so the uh, – and as the Russian businessmen say, oh, we have protected our businesses now. So even if they prohibit us from getting access to the dollar, uh, we'll still go ahead. And there's the danger for the United States that the dollar is now the overwhelmingly dominant currency in world trade. Uh, if China, China and Russia are already working out methods to go to the mm-hmm. yuan, and if we prohibit Russia from uh, access to the dollar for its bonds or whatever, and it, uh, that will simply weaken the role of the U.S. currency uh, in, the, in the world economy, and that will damage mm-hmm. our own economy. Uh, Jeff, you know, I, you, you have asked me about my sense of the process. Uh, you've been a very active participant in all dimensions of this work. Uh, and I would like to hear what you as a participant uh, have observed <laughs> right. in it's terms always, of process. It's always harder to be on the other side of the microphone, isn't it? Um, yeah, look, I, I think it's it's been a very useful process that uh, is not being replicated as far as I'm aware uh, elsewhere in Washington. And it, it's ironic because, as you pointed out, there is a bipartisan policy towards Russia right now. But at the same time, even though the policy may be more or less bipartisan, there's a really deep partisan divide when it comes to how we think about Russia. Uh, and that has to do in large part with, with 2016, with uh, the questions about connections between Trump's campaign and, and various Russian entities and, and the, the Mueller investigation, which is ongoing. Um, and so some of that partisanship uh, is baked into the way that people talk about Russia. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily mm-hmm. explicit. And I think it's it's been helpful to have people uh, who approach that issue from very different starting points having to talk to one another and lay out what their basic assumptions about the problem are. Um, because I, I do think there's a, a bipartisan concern about Russia, uh, even you know among people who assess the, the 2016 election in very different ways. Absolutely. Um, and once you sort of take that issue out of the equation, you take 2016 out of the equation um, and start talking about strategic interests and the the long-term nature of the challenge, I I do think there's more overlap than is sometimes given credit for. And the other thing I would say is that it's become sort of a cliche, but like most cliches, there's an element of truth to it, that a lot of the U.S. and I think a lot of Washington is uh, trapped in its own bubble. Uh, And there's less inclination to talk to people with whom one has not just policy disagreements but sort of philosophical disagreements Mm -hmm. um, than maybe existed in the past. And so to kind of have this dialogue as a forcing mechanism for those kind of conversations has been really useful. Um, I think in terms of the the policy recommendations that come out of it, you know, there's going to be greater or lesser degree of of accord on those. Mm -hmm. But just simply having some of those conversations forces people maybe to question their own assumptions. It forces them to listen to and take seriously the assumptions of people on the other side of the process. Uh, and as you said, there's the, the relationship building aspect of it, which means that the next time some of these conversations have to happen, whether it's about Russia sanctions or whatever it is, those conversations will hopefully be a little bit easier. Um, so I think it's been, a, it, it's been a useful initiative and I'm looking forward to seeing the, the final report. 
So, Phil, you also uh, were just in, in Moscow talking yeah. about um, this initiative and sort of the larger state of U.S.-Russian relations. Just curious sort of what your impressions were, if you heard anything that was particularly striking. Uh, several things. I'll begin uh, with uh, something that most people would find very surprising. Uh, Mr. Zorkin is the mm -hmm. chairman of the Constitutional Court of Russia. Has been for has going been on 30 years. years. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And he made a uh, – published an article, right, in uh, the official Rosiska Gazeta uh, in which he said, our president has too much power. He's the president of the whole country. He's not the president of the executive branch. And so we, we lack a balance of power and we need to institutionalize a balance of power. Well, I happen to be friends with the uh, uh, with one of his old friends, who uh, in fact uh, published an article last December in Bruskaya uh, Natsia, uh, and uh, then just recently another article uh, making this same point. Uh, and he tells me that uh, that Zorkin's uh, statement was the beginning of a serious discussion mm -hmm. related to the next thing. Every High-level Russian I talked to says, number one, no one understands what the policymaking process is. In it's, Russia. It's, yeah, it's chaotic. Mm -hmm. uh, and the president himself is bored with the job. And people, uh, uh, many, many people uh, feel it's time for change. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're willing to tell uh, me that. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, those things come together. Uh, in at least some people's thinking that this may uh, – to protect himself and his future because a leader uh, who's been there around this uh, – any leader of Russia who doesn't die shortly after uh, is not necessarily a safe person. And so uh, by, by – one, the theory behind this is creating a balance of power in which he may become a nominal like in, in Germany head of state mm -hmm. with no uh, real authority, a figurehead, uh, may be a way to uh, uh, structure a transition of power where uh, the Duma has a lot more say. Uh, which was taken away from it in 1993, uh, and where the president is, is uh, constitution revised, the president is merely the head of the executive with mm -hmm. limited powers. I, I sometimes use the uh, the analogy of uh, how Deng Xiaoping stepped down and was still the head of the was it the Shanghai Bridge Club or yes, something right, like that. Right, right, right. I think the Chinese are more capable of that, though, than Russians. We don't have a, an historical example in Russia of a leader stepping down and still maintaining influence. Right. And so that would be a real first. Uh, and I know many people expect that he will be there uh, forever. Uh, and uh, but I, and I, I, you know, I'm not betting on, on these points, but I think they're important to note uh, because the third point is that uh, everyone tells me there's a fierce competition for, uh, for the over the future. Uh, and in that regard, I was talking with uh, at the embassy reception for the participants, Russian participants in Open World, the Congress, the Library of Congress uh, exchange, uh, which is still going on, and of which there are twenty thousand Russian participants in the last wow. twenty years. And uh, one, one a journalist was telling me, you know, I asked people, who do you think would make a good president uh, after uh, Mr. Putin? And what do I hear most of the time, Mr. Kadyrov? The the, the uh, uh, president of Chechnya. Wait a minute, Chechnya's the one, he's the one who murdered Nemtsov. He's the one who uh, Putin looks to uh, as his henchman. Uh, 
uh, and, uh, and and why would they support him? You know, I asked, and she said, and the, she said the response I get, this journalist, the response I get is, he treats people fairly. Uh, he uh, he apologizes when he needs to, and nobody else does. Uh, but I find it uh, fascinating. I mean, uh, the Chechnya is ruled with a, a hand more iron than that. I think no, at least as iron as that of Stalin. Mm-hmm. And so, not to mention the fact that uh, Mr. Kadyrov is Muslim. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Another uh, point that was uh, made was this journalist is. I asked about. I asked about uh, what is the state of uh, the role. Uh, what is the current role of the K, of the FSB, the former, the, mm-hmm. what's the former KGB? I said I hear. I've had conversations all over the place, which are far more open than I've had. I mean, certainly in the nineties than I yeah. ever had in the Soviet period. And uh, so, what, what's what's your view? Well, and this was the younger people who've been in mm-hmm. the exchange tell me. Well, you know, uh, any of us who write something uh, that is uh, critical uh, in any political way in any social media will be called in for talk. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we don't change our tune or cease, uh, we could face severe penalties. Uh, other more senior people say, uh, and these are people who, have, one guy was an interpreter for Brezhnev and, mm-hmm. and all of those people around the world, says they're still there. They're simply more less visible. And so it's an element, in a sense, this is still a highly authoritarian society, mm-hmm. uh, even though it has a dynamism which uh, the Soviet Union right. never had. Uh, and it's something we have to, have to try to work out. So uh, I, I guess I will, I will conclude with the, I'll give the example of the gas exchange, uh, or the gas project, but uh, there at the um, American level through the ambassador, but we know this comes from Pompeo himself uh, and uh, from uh, the, the Russian leadership. There is a commitment to vastly uh, broaden the areas of exchange between our societies. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, while some people say, well, you know, that, you know, we had all kinds of interaction in World War I among uh, all the— World War II. Uh, world, before World War I and World before War I still happened. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right? Right, right. Uh, so I'm not sure that— that would prevent war. But what it does do, and I have seen this in, in exchange after exchange, uh, talking to the Russians who've been on the exchange, it changes their view of the other. Right. Uh, it makes possible building relationships, uh, and that makes possible collaboration. Uh, for I'll give just one small illustration. Uh, out of the Dartmouth exchange came a medical exchange with uh, doctors in Kazan and at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. The focus uh, and the people involved are specialists in neonatal care. The crux of that issue is what do you do with premature babies that uh, the U.S. experience in Georgia, they, they looked at this. Nobody else had. What happens to these premature babies born in the 23rd, 22nd, 23rd week that you can save when they're six years old? Mm-hmm. Well, they're all extremely retarded. What kind of a life do they have? This raises fundamental moral questions that both sides are wrestling with together. Mm-hmm. And, and, and looking at protocols for how to improve the, the care of children in both places and learning from each other. Well, that's that, those kind of exchanges where people do joint work mm-hmm. uh, of enormous human value uh, that uh, uh, creates shared experiences, shared values across the differences in our society uh, that uh, when multiplied thousands of times, 
right? Uh, make it possible for people to at least separate the political world from the human world. Most Russians say, I detest American foreign policy. I love America, right? But uh, not enough Americans have had that experience in Russia right. to say the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's, there's not an, an equivalent of, of open world, I guess, going the other direction. That's right. That's right. Uh, although we are working through the Dartmouth process uh, and uh, with uh, others to try to uh, do what we can. And it's nice to see that the administrations on both sides are supportive of that. Good. Well, uh, we can remain at least somewhat hopeful for the future then. Uh, Phil, thanks again for joining us today. It's my pleasure. I'll remain quite hopeful, but I understand it's very hard for people who work with us day in and day out in the <laughs> nitty-gritty of policy to hold their optimism. But uh, Amen to that. Uh, yes. Otherwise, you know, cynicism uh, is so easy uh, and, and it, it, it muddies our capacity for fresh thinking. That is it for our show today. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, there's a link to Phil's bio in the show notes. Uh, as always, if you haven't already, uh, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you're not an iTunes user, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play or on SoundCloud. Uh, sign up, subscribe, enjoy, and spread the word. Uh, and, of course, uh, send in mailbag questions. Send them to rep at csis.org with the words Russian roulette in the subject line. Uh, we're going to do another mailbag segment here shortly. Uh, and the more good questions we have, the more interesting the mailbag segment will be. So please send us questions. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, the program is at CSIS Russia. Uh, I am at Dr. J. Mankoff, and Olya is at Olya Olaker. And of course, a uh, big thank you to everyone who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our research associate and program manager, Cyrus Newland, our intern, Kimberly Schuster, and the whole CSIS, external relations, and iLab teams. Until next time, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.